Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, welcome everybody to episode 18 of the Broken to Unbroken podcast. We have a very special guest and colleague and former classmate, Dr. Angela Luchterhand with us this morning. Thank you for making time on a Saturday morning with us, yep. Angela. No problem. Awesome. So let give you give us a little bit of background about yourself and then we'll kind of jump into the questions because this is going to be some great material for people of all levels. I know that some of the uh, and topics that we've gotten into with some of the other guests in the in the past, people have re- reached out to me saying, "Hey, that was really sciency, and I didn't understand any of it." I think this is going to be some very good, actionable material with uh, Dr. Angela that everybody can take something away from. Yeah, so I grew up in northern Indiana, sort of near Notre Dame, and went to IU down in Bloomington and decided at that point I knew that I wanted to be in healthcare, sort of got on track to go to medical school and very quickly realized I don't believe in the paradigm or it just wasn't for me. So that sort of started the journey of exploration as to what am I going to do if I'm on my way to medical school, but I don't want to be a medical doctor in the the, traditional sense. So I took a short stint and went to the Peace Corps in Mali, West Africa. So I was there for a little while. And then when I came back, I went to chiropractic school and got my doctorate there. And then now I practice solely functional medicine. So it's been a little bit of a journey to get to where I am. So what led you to chiropractic initially, and then after you graduated chiropractic school, what kind of transformed you from, okay, I want to be a just a, a normal um, adjust and just see people on a maintenance wellness basis chiropractor to more of a functional medicine practitioner? Yeah. So when I came back from Africa, I thought I would potentially maybe go into public health, but, um, you know, there were some challenges there. So I met a chiropractor who went back to school as a second career. He was actually a scientist, um, originally and gave me a book on chiropractic philosophy and getting to the root of, you know, disease and, and really correcting things in a systems biology approach. And I was like, sold, sign me up. And I actually signed up to go to Palmer before I had ever gotten adjusted. And he was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. You definitely have to get adjusted before you go to school. And I was, I was actually terrified, but I did believe in the philosophy. So the rest of that was sort of history. And then after I graduated, I went into practice. I I don't know if you know who Dr. James Chestnut is, but he um, is, yeah, he's super big into like the wellness aspect of chiropractic and and more of just um, nutrition, exercise, mind, spirit stuff in addition to nervous system. And um, so I took that approach and treated people just like you would chiropractically, but there was sort of an issue trying to define your care when you do both, right? So I did both uh, like functional medicine and chiropractic for about five years or so. And then when I decided to just go into functional medicine solely, and that, that decision was actually not one that I was excited to make, but there was some contractual things where when I left that particular practice, I couldn't practice uh, chiropractic within a certain radius for a certain time frame. So it sort of forced me to only practice functional medicine. And I was a little hesitant about it, but it was what it was and sort of said, all right. And the minute I started defining myself as a functional medicine doctor, it completely opened the floodgates for non-musculoskeletal patients. And even some musculoskeletal patients that saw me in the chiropractic clinic were all of a sudden coming to me for chronic diseases. And I was, you know, thinking to myself, I've been seeing you for the past five years. Why didn't we mention this before? And it's like, well, I don't know. I used to just come to you for my nervous system tune-ups, you know, my adjustments, my musculoskeletal stuff, and I didn't really think about it. So, you know, there's time constraints in a uh, chiropractic appointment that may not lend itself to doing both. And I think the definition of 
who you are and what you do when a patient is looking for you is a little bit of an obstacle if you decide to do both. So even though it was sort of a bittersweet, you know, stray from the journey, like, oh my gosh, how am I not going to practice chiropractic? It was sort of a blessing in disguise because it opened the floodgates then to uh, functional medicine for me on a level that it hadn't existed before when I was trying to juggle both. Yeah. And I think you and I went through very similar dilemmas because I I think we're like the bastard children of Palmer College to where <laughs> if, if you're not like adjusting and leave it alone, yes. uh, they're like, no, you heathen. Uh, yes. And I was just like, I, I was not married to any philosophy. I was kind of like whoring myself out to whatever could fix the patient fastest. And I was just like, sold on the the manual therapy and then rehab them, get them strong, send them out to go tear up life. Uh, and I see a lot of people in my practice to where, because half of my patients come from orthopedists, neurosurgeons, primary care. And I see that there's a lot of holes in the system of like, hey, if this isn't black or white, or we can't look at this very 30,000 foot view diagnostic test or MRI and point to something and blame, there's a, there's kind of a gap between, okay, if we don't have this very simple cause and effect relationship between testing and patient presentation, they're just like, ah, go to this specialist and go over here. And it's just like, people are getting referred around just to get them out of their hair because they're not sure how to deal with the stuff that may be gray. It's not black and white. What do you see there? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the traditional care model in any regard, whether you're talking about chiropractic or, you know, traditional medical, you know, practice, it's very much set up for acute care and diagnosis and pathology, anything outside of that. And the house sort of starts to crumble. Just like you said, if I can't pinpoint a specific pathology, then I'm going to say you're either okay, or I'm going to pinpoint a pathology and say, this is the sickness and there's some type of acute treatment intervention. Now, heaven forbid, we have an acute treatment uh, setup and we have it flooded with chronic diseases and gray area patients. So functional medicine does a really nice job of saying, look, there's a bunch of people who are amazing at rescue intervention, and that's not what I do. You know, I'm trained to recognize when there's an emergency, but once we're past the emergency, it's about how are you functioning? And there's an entire area of functionality that does not equal pathology, right? And I'm sure you see that in your practice too. It's like you may not have a broken bone, but the way you're moving is not functionally efficient. So what do you do for those people in an acute care model? And it just doesn't work. So the idea of you know rehabs and Functional medicine is really rehab for systems biology. It's like, how do we get your body functioning appropriately again? And when I look at labs, it's not so much for a diagnosis. Obviously, I'm looking for markers that would give me an idea of root causes, but it's all about how are we going to make the patient more effective at life? Like, and that's not a diet necessarily a diagnosis and treatment type, you know, system. And I, I see a lot of parallels between like the the world you're living in and the world I'm living in because we see very, pretty different patient demographics, and that's why I think I can learn a lot from you. Uh, and the the gap I see is everyone that comes into me is in pain of some kind because I don't do wellness based care; it's all like condition based. And people come in, they're like, "I have fibromyalgia." In the, the people that come into a primary care physician and they're like, oh, I have SIBO or I have uh, gluten intolerance and their doctor must be rolling their eyes like me where I'm like, okay, what, got, what doctor at a med clinic diagnosed you with fibromyalgia just to get you out of the office? And I think that some of the diagnoses that – I think there's a delicate balance because I tell people that – Functional medicine is very good, but you really have to really vet your provider because they can latch on to these very 
uh, trendy diagnoses and run up the bill if they you aren't holding them accountable. Like we had a discussion before the recording about uh, trusting your car salesman when you don't know what you're looking for in what are the important things for people should look for in a functional medicine provider? And what are some red flags? I know this is, wasn't a, a question that I sent you ahead of time, but I think it's an important topic just to teach people how to, to spot some of these maybe nefarious practices that are happening. Cause I, there's a couple of functional medicine groups in town that I won't send people to. Cause I know that Every diagnostic test they run is going to tell that patient that they need that really shiny blend of supplements that they have on the front shelf that's vastly overpriced. Yes. yes. And I'm probably not going to make a ton of friends <laughs> by saying these statements, but I do think that it's important because just like you said here, when I go into the realm of buying a car, I don't know everything and I want to know what I should trust. And to me, at least the way I practice and the way that I see good practitioners that do functional medicine practice is A, they're always looking for the triggers for what you have going on, right? Because if we don't reverse the reason why you have the issues that you have, then I may just be treating you like traditional care, but with supplements, right? Trading a medication for symptoms and whatever for green medicine is not better medicine, right? So I would say that the goal that you have with that practitioner is to find how we got here and to reverse it. And if the answers aren't empowering to that patient, then you probably need to be going somewhere else. So if the the provider is telling you, oh, and this happens so many times, I get so many patients that come to me that say, oh my gosh, I can't eat these foods. I have an autoimmune disease. I have parasites. I have candida. I have did it. And I say, oh, okay. And then when we start unraveling the ball of how they got to all of those things, the patient truly believes that they have all these things. And, you know, maybe that's the case. I don't know, but no testing is done. No, they're just giving people like a million diagnoses that all, like you said, come with a supplement to correct. And so it's like they get funneled into all of these diagnostic tests that no test is definitive. We're looking at surrogate markers to give us information. And so if you're just running tests and doing things off of quote unquote abnormal readings, yeah, you're going to be spending a lot of money on a lot of different tests because I could go through a stool test. I could go through a cortisol test. I could go through making sure you don't have Lyme. I could go through now we need SIBO. I could go through hormone testing. Before you know it, you're several thousand dollars into testing and every test gives you some abnormalities. Everybody is individual and functions differently. So if the answer to those labs is here's the supplement for this abnormality, then that's another red flag to me. Because you can do so much with food and lifestyle intervention that if someone comes to me and they're spending hundreds of dollars every month on supplements because of their quote unquote functional medicine, you know, treatment protocol, I think to me that is a red flag in treatment. So when you're looking for a provider, A, they shouldn't be an empowering person for what you can actually do to take initiative on your own to reverse things. And the answer should not just be a pill for every abnormal test. And I would say that in the world of functional medicine, like I do this a lot, there's not a ton of testing that's actually like going to change treatment protocols or lifestyle interventions. So testing should change treatment. And if the test isn't going to change what I do with you, then I don't know why I'm making you spend money to do that. So I personally try and make it so we have a consult on the front end for a couple reasons. One is I want you to feel like you can trust me and you're going to know that in your first appointment. It's a low fee appointment because I'm not giving you any direction or medical advice. We're just really having a conversation to kind of get an idea of where you've been and where you want to go. And then B, like I... I'm not the answer to every condition. So it's my opportunity to say, look, I think you need referred out or I'm not the person to help you, but I can point you in the right direction. And somebody who, who has not only the answer for everything, don't trust that, but be the same answer for everything, don't trust that either, right? So if you talk to some patients that have been there and every single person walks out with 
can, you know, candida overgrowth and the treatment is all the same. Like that's probably not a great, you know, thing to, to rely on. Yeah. It's just like that surgeon that like everything looks like a nail. If all you have is a hammer, like it's the same thing that we say about the, the traditional medicine field. If you're making everything a SIBO or everything, a candida, like there's, there's something wrong with that because I, I practiced with a physician that everything was diet. Like you got in that car accident cause you ate beef and you were having brain fog because you ate dairy. And that's why, uh, you're so depressed. And it's like, no, I'm pretty sure there's a couple other things going on there. It's not all diet. Yes. Diet is very important, but the person sprained their ankle cause they landed on somebody's foot playing basketball. They didn't sprain their ankle because they ate dairy that morning. Yes. Yes. And I think too, um, coming from the chiropractic background and obviously being a human being in America in standard care models before that, um, I have a good perspective for what is appropriate for acute intervention and when does an MD maybe need to be a part of the picture? When is there musculoskeletal things that need to be addressed? And even then, like when I was at the chiropractic clinic, there were so many things where I knew there were valuable interventions that I didn't provide within my specific clinic, but I did not hesitate to refer out for those because the reality was, is this patient needs help? And I am not the best person for every single thing. And being okay with that, I think sometimes it's a fear-based model, right? It's like, oh, well, if I send them somewhere else because someone else does something, then they're not going to come back to me or they're not going to have confidence in me or it's going to look bad or whatever. But the reality is, is most patients come back to you and say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for sending me there because I am so much better and I loved that doctor and whatever. And it becomes more of a synergy, but you know, you can't be the answer to everything. Yeah. And you can't be all doctor to all patients, or you're just going to be a really crappy doctor to a bunch of people. Uh, I I tell our doctors that I work with, it's like, you got to play in your own sandbox. You got to stay in your lane. Uh, You're not going to push on someone's bicep and fix their MS or their diabetes or their cancer. Like you just need to be a very good diagnostician for musculoskeletal care and be okay with being pigeonholed because I'm, I'm a pigeonholed ninja. I'm really good at my small niche part of the market because chronic pain costs the United States $650 billion a year. That's more than cancer, diabetes, and heart disease combined. So I'm okay with that small niche piece of the pie. Uh, And so I'm going to lump a couple questions together because you mentioned the, uh, the initial consultation. What are the benefits and the challenges to doing like telemedicine or remote consultations and also like how do you you talked about referring out uh how do you create a network of providers to keep your patients well and is there additional challenges of like hey i'm doing a consult with someone in california uh how do i get them somebody to fix their sprained ankle or get them emergency care how do you coordinate that kind of stuff yeah so um i would say that I practice telemedicine now, but I, there are challenges to it that I don't love. And I would say one of the challenges is that I can't physically see the patient. So I sort of have to take the patient's word for some of their subjective evaluations, right? If they tell me they're overweight, I don't know their weight distribution. You know, I may have a number and a height in front of me, but people have body dysmorphia, right? They don't always interpret everything the way that I would. Or if I can see someone's skin, I can tell you hormonal patterns or, you know, things like that, where they may be like, oh, my skin is great because in perspective of their own journey, it may be great right now, but if I were to see them physically, I may have um, a different opinion. So there is a challenge, I think, for me not being able to physically see the patient. And when I used to do in-person appointments um, and not all telemedicine, another thing was I used to travel to their location many times so I could get a feel for their, their environment really quickly, right? You take in a lot of sensory input by being just in a space that your mind puts together into a, a 
puzzle and the, those pieces for me, I have to ask more questions and remember to ask those questions to actually get all of those puzzle pieces where before it would have been more apparent. The other thing too is, you know, I became really um, passionate about trying to educate over the internet because people that try and work with a doctor over the phone need to trust them, feel like they know them. And that is a struggle if they don't actually get to meet them. Right. So I would say those are the biggest struggles for me from a telemedicine standpoint, from just a global telemedicine practitioner standpoint, there's different laws with every state. So my license is in Indiana. So most of my patients are in Indiana. If I um, consult with patients outside of my, you know, territory for licensure, then they cannot be considered my patients. So every state has different um, legality in that regard. And you just have to make them sign waivers and things like that saying they understand. Now, the other thing that I do since I sort of pigeonholed myself into a specialty of autoimmunity is I always have them keep their primary care provider. So if they have um, a care team already, even if they're not happy with care, I ask them to keep that provider, not only because there could be certain things that we would like that MD to run on labs that your insurance will cover that if I order it, they won't or things like that. But I have found over the years that regardless of whether or not that practitioner is on board with your alternative path, when you show up and they use the same diagnostic testing that they use to give you your initial diagnosis. So for maybe like a Crohn's patient, a colonoscopy, or a rheumatologist, a bunch of, you know, ANA and, and rheumatology markers and things like that. When those are reversed and they find out what you did, it opens up the door for opportunity for them to see that, yes, there are ways to actually reverse autoimmune diseases that they were taught weren't possible and they want to know what you did. So instantaneously, you have sort of a ripple effect. And even if they don't change anything about what they do, they may be more willing to refer out or more willing to accept another patient saying, I want to explore these opportunities. So that's been really sort of a rewarding thing for me. And to segue into your other question, that's also been one of my ways of networking. When a doctor <clears throat> can see that you get results, not just from a patient's perspective, but from a lab work perspective, um, they're more confident in not only referring back to you, but accepting your patients and having confidence in what you're asking them to do as a, as a collaboration. Now, if somebody's like in Texas, okay, so I actually do have this as, as the case. I happen to work with a large company that has, you know, fingers everywhere. So not only up in Canada, but all over the United States. So I usually call my reps in those areas and say, hey, who do you really love from a musculoskeletal standpoint? You work with all these doctors, you know, can you give me some ideas? And then I'll vet sort of the website if I don't know who they are and kind of try and find a good fit or just give the patient a few options if they're not wanting to stay with their original doctor. Now, that's sort of an advantage that I have now that I work with a nutraceutical company that I don't, didn't have before, right? It would have been more like relying on um, what I could find on the internet if they were far away or asking them to stay with their current primary care provider. Excellent. So the this time of year is very interesting to where people just kind of pause their healthy decision making from Thanksgiving to January 1 when they're rubbing the hangover out of their eyes. Uh, if somebody's doing a lot more stuff, like just think typical uh, Western diet, like uh, fast food, maybe eight, 10 times a week. Think Peter Griffin from Family Guy. Uh, like, hey, like yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of lost because you get these fit people that are doing the whole 30 and they're already fit and they're making a lot of good decisions. They're at the gym. They're doing a lot more things right than wrong. But the typical person that's just like in a holding pattern to where they're like, yeah, I had to buy my second level of fat pants. And uh, they're just like just in this depressive holding pattern. What are some easy like action steps, just kind of baby steps if they're not ready to just go like 
wholeheartedly into like, okay, I'm going to do a clean sweep of my lifestyle and move to Bali and do yoga and eat nothing but organic vegetables. Uh, (laughs) Like what are some very actionable steps that are not prohibitively expensive? They're not really going to pose too much of an inconvenience, but what do you see from an 80, 20 principle? Like these are some initial action steps for people that just do a lot more crap wrong than they do right. Yeah, that's tough because I would say that, and I didn't really realize that I used to do this initially with patients until someone sort of started asking me about the process by which I prescribe things to people because not everybody starts in the same spot, right? So I sort of categorize patients into either type A or type B. And your type A patients, I'm sure you have them, right? They're the athletes that they want to get everything they can out of that last percent of efficiency. And they will do above and beyond things to make that happen. So your type A will go from zero to hero really easily. Your type B though, man, they drag their feet a little bit and you almost have to um, give them incremental points along the way for them to make progress. And I would say the lowest hanging fruit which I would not have said this when I started practicing many, many years ago. I would not have said this, but I will say this now. I would say the lowest hanging fruit is quality. So if you didn't change a single thing about what you actually ate, but you made sure that you were buying like organic versions or, you know, non processed versions, you would be ahead of the game tenfold. So that's not even changing anything you eat. Eat the dang cookie, eat the dang pie, you know, whatever, but have it be homemade. Or if you're eating, you know, um, wheat products and corn products and soy products and whatever, like, don't even worry about cutting them out, buy organic. If you want to eat your macaroni and cheese, buy the organic macaroni and cheese. And I know that may sound a little, and I don't know if it sounds crazy to you or not, that may sound crazy because people are like, well, I thought you weren't supposed to eat those things. I have not quite decided based on my clinical outcomes with patients, whether or not removing the certain food groups is actually what's positive for a majority of them, or if it's removing the alterations and chemical components that are within those food groups. Because when you remove those massive food groups, like you know wheat and dairy, things like that, you remove a lot of the chemical and altered components of food antigens. So I don't know if it's really ethical to separate the two and be like, okay, you don't have to change anything about what you eat, but just up your quality. You know, if you're going to buy beef, buy grass-fed beef. If you're going to eat macaroni and cheese, make sure it's organic. If you're going to, you know, whatever, or these people completely change their diet because you may be seeing positive results by eliminating the same thing, but you think you're doing it differently, if that makes sense. So I would say quality is huge. You don't have to change anything, but just removing those parts of what could be bad about it is important. Yeah, and I think that's important just because if you have people making homemade stuff, uh, they're not going to overeat something that they had to work hard to make themselves as much as if they just go buy it off the shelf. That's why when I want ice cream, we make our own ice cream. Uh, cause it's like, okay, I had to work really hard to make this and I can't sit down with a half gallon of it and just wreck shop. Right. And it off that obstacle of just making the decision to take time to make it is enough to make you really honest about whether or not you want it. Right. If you had to make your own French fries to eat them, if you had to make your own pie to eat it, if you had to make your own candy bar to eat it, if you had to make your own pizza to eat it, how many times would you choose it? And I think then that lazy factor sort of keeps you honest in terms of whole food choices, because it's like, yeah, you'll go to that, that length sometimes, but not, you know, as frequent as I just can buy anything off the shelf at the gas station. We definitely made our own French fries almost on a daily yes. basis in Bali okay. on a hot plate. Like, <laughs> there you go. There you go. But it was like, we wanted French fries and every place we went, we got French fries because they're really good there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, in those scenarios too, which if you're making things by yourself, you have control over quality where, you know, if you 
just buy something pre-made. You don't know what kinds of fats they used. You don't know if they used genetically modified versions of certain crops and things like that, where you can make those choices when you're choosing the ingredients too. Yeah. And I, I think that another pitfall is people want to start with the pill or the supplement. And if they don't set the internal environment, they're just, they're creating really expensive pee and poop. Uh, and if they're just like, oh, I'm just going to throw this supplement into this very chaotic internal milieu of a body, uh, I think that's a pitfall for a lot of people as well. Do you see that on your end as well? Yeah, I um, obviously in the beginning, if there's a reason to use um, nature as medicine from a supplement perspective, then I do use it like medication. But the answer is not you then buy this supplement and take it forever. There's a time frame, right? Just like if you had a severe bacterial infection and you start taking an antibiotic, it's necessary maybe in that time frame, but then you stop it. And if my answer to you having a bacterial infection for the rest of your life or not is to just take this medication forever, like that, that doesn't work. And it's the same thing with supplements. Now, having said that, there are essential nutrients that are probably deficient in most people that live standard American lives and diets and, and lifestyles. Okay. So things like fish oil or potentially even probiotics or certain broad spectrum nutrients from plants, et cetera. I always give my patients a choice. I actually have a chart and it shows what nutrients in what levels they should be getting from their diet on a regular basis. And I let them make a decision. Look, you can get this from a pill. The pill will never be as good as the food option, but I don't want you to be deficient in these specific nutrients. So if you're not going to eat these foods and be honest with yourself, then you need to know when to use supplements. And they get to make that choice on their own. And there are some supplements that are expensive and the food to get them is sort of expensive too. But there are some supplements that are super expensive and the food to get that nutrient is super cheap. So if someone is telling me they have financial constraints, then that's part of our conversation. Look, you need this nutrient. Here's your two options to get it. You're telling me you have financial obstacles to overcome. So I would say food is probably the best option. Can we learn to introduce this into our diet on a regular basis? And so in that sense, it's their decision, but it should never be, you need these supplements and you need them forever. I don't think. Yeah. And just cause that removes the, the, the onus from the patient, like they're in control of their decisions in their life. That's like saying that, Hey, every time your back is stiff, you need to be on my table and I need to work on you versus me showing them all right, these are some exercises that you can do to calm this down when it does get stiff because the recurrence rate is so high for low back pain that I want to teach yeah. people how to find their triggers, identify them, not be scared of them, but respect that they do have those triggers and act accordingly. So I think that you empowering the patient going, hey, you can get this from your grocery store and you don't have to rely on a supplement is there's an interesting parallel because uh, food is essentially your maintenance protocol and your rehab versus a supplement being an intervention like me doing manual therapy on somebody. Sometimes it's it's necessary to reset a system, but it's a temporary intervention with a well-defined closed-ended endpoint. For sure. And just like I used to tell people in chiropractic clinic when I did rehab and things, it's like, look, you see me for 15 minutes or whatever out of your day. What do you think is happening for the other 23 hours and 45 minutes? Like what you do on a regular basis in your life and your choices are going to have a much bigger impact than what I'm able to do in this finite window of time. And I'm going to give you information that's powerful. And I'm obviously going to Put you on a certain trajectory based on intervention. But the reality is, is you got to own this. Like you got to take care of your 23 hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. What are, and this is another off topic question, uh, just because you're more connected in this world than I am. And I'm just curious for my own, uh, just curiosity, what labels, what companies, what what things should you look for when you do in fact identify that you need a supplement because the supplement industry tends to be one of the most crooked in 
ill like they're not really governed by a lot of they're kind of self-governed which is very dangerous uh other than like some of the nsf stuff and i don't even know if that has much merit anymore i just know that it's like okay we've identified fillers that won't get you kicked out of the ncaa uh or olympic competition but what things should people look for going okay i've identified i need this uh, is this a legit bioavailable supplement or is this just garbage? Yeah, I actually was asked uh, this over dinner a couple weeks ago, and this is a very difficult question to answer in a straightforward fashion. Um, but I would say that if you're seeing a provider that actually sells supplements and they're selling provider only supplements, so practitioner brand, they tend to have sort of higher standards for for what they're willing to sell. Now, even amongst those, there's differences in what you're willing to do because it really costs a lot of money to make really good supplements, which isn't really great for the final cost of the product. So it, in my opinion, it comes down more to choosing a company, which is very difficult when you don't really know the industry, choosing a company that you trust. And I would say those um, in the practitioner world are maybe a little bit more worried about some of that stuff than the retail world. And B, it comes down to nutrient. So even if you're like on Google and you think you want you know, CoQ10 or something like that, Google different forms of CoQ10, because really some supplements are just pretty standard across the board. Like if I tell you to take vitamin D3, I don't really care where you get it from. It's pretty standard. But if I tell you, you need to be taking a probiotic or a fish oil, even maybe there's very specific differences in what would be the best delivery system for bioavailability or for quality and things like that. So if I am selling you a powdered CoQ10, that's not going to be as good as if it's delivered within a gel or a fat delivery. But if you don't sort of do your homework, then that's hard. Now, if you're a layperson and you want to take, you know, a hundred nutrients, which I feel like people get sucked into that because they hear something good about everything. Um, that's where working with a practitioner that you trust is important because that person should be able to identify the ones you actually need and be able to say, look, these are the, the ones that I would use because the delivery systems or the quality or the form, et cetera, is what you need. And then you don't have to feel like you need to do all the research on your own. But I would say it comes down to if you're not working with a practitioner, literally searching on the internet for what is the best supplemental form of the nutrient. And you'll get a lot of information that way in terms of finding companies that, you know, do things well in terms of quality. I would say, look at the other ingredients. Many times there'll be like crazy stuff in there in terms of excipients. Um, USP is something that um, you might see on a label, which is a standard of quality. Many times you can see a form of a specific nutrient like calcium for for just an example, if you see calcium carbonate in your multivitamin versus calcium citrate, then that gives you sort of a benchmark for how how above and beyond do they go in their formulations to make sure that you're getting the best form. And that that comes with experience. And so that's why it's tough, I feel like, to just willy-nilly just you know, buy whatever you want or what you think you need. I would say more people come to me on supplements they don't need than do need. Yeah. And I've got a lady that she thinks she is the healthiest thing ever because she buys every freaking thing that Dr. Oz says to buy. She's, yeah. She's oh, yeah. All the raspberry ketones and the, the, the green coffee bean extracts. And it's like, those are like people that weigh 400 pounds and they buy the Skechers shape ups. It's like, you're still not fit because you have that curved bottom shoe. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. And I actually feel like it gives the, um, I don't know if natural medicine is the right term, but the natural medicine or green medicine side of things, a really bad rap. When I have Older people call me, you know, they're retired and they have nothing better to do than sit around and listen to the radio and watch TV shows on health. They will literally buy every single supplement. And 
if you pay attention, you will notice every single supplement is going to improve something that you probably have as a symptom based on your lifestyle. They're going to tell you it improves your sleep, it improves your energy, it improves your skin, hair, and nails, and it improves your digestion. And as long as they say those things, everybody thinks they need every single one of those things. And it's like, you know, that's where being in collaboration with somebody who can actually tell you what you really need, you know, is important. Yeah. And I, I think that was a good point and it brings up another kind of segue tangent question. A lot of the things that people seek help with a functional medicine provider have very broad, very vague symptoms like, okay, Mm -hmm. you can Google uh, SIBO or candida infection or uh, all these other things. And you can lump in like chronic Lyme and they can really chameleon into a very diverse set of symptoms, but it can be very hard if you're just like not functioning and not thriving. You can think that you have these things and I think that's part of the challenge when you have an MD that is just practicing general medicine and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a time and a place for that. But I think that's where functional medicine gets a bad rap is if you get some of these people that are practicing like we discussed when we made comments that didn't make us any friends uh, the outside medical world can look at those providers and go, yeah, they're just giving everybody that. And because the people can Google that and say, oh yeah, I have fatigue and irritable bowels and irregular, uh, bowel movements and all this other stuff. And I have indigestion and I like, you can say that's from a lot of different stuff. And if the provider takes advantage of an unknowing patient, and says, hey, yes. this is what you need. This is what you have. I'm going to make you happy and give you your your SIBO diagnosis and enough stuff fits and I can make a profit off of this. I think that's where we can run into some trouble. Yeah. And I think there's two sides to that coin, right? So when patients come to me and they have only ambiguous sort of, um, you know, all over the place symptoms, but they are not necessarily honed in on lifestyle intervention, I will say it does me no good to run around trying to test for, could this be Lyme? Could this be, you know, some type of yeast overgrowth? Could this be um, SIBO? Could this be, you know, it, we will do no good running five different panels trying to pinpoint what this is if you haven't intervened on your lifestyle, right? So for me, testing changes treatment. So I will then intervene lifestyle-wise first for a period of time. And what's magical about it is they call you in two months and they're like, holy crap, I feel like a new person. But... I have this one symptom that is still hanging on. And that one symptom from a diagnostic standpoint helps direct me in terms of what test actually needs to be done to identify if something's happening way easier than if I tried to troubleshoot on the front end, because sometimes just all the lifestyle interventions and and things that they can do on their own that don't cost anything. I mean, there, maybe there's cost transfer, right? Which ain't making different food choices and things like that. But sometimes that alone gets rid of 80% of their symptoms. I don't know about you, but it's much easier to diagnose and know which direction to be looking when there's 20% of those symptoms present. It makes a much easier clinical picture. Now, on the other side of that coin, I don't want to say they should ever use um, diagnostics and things like that to profit off of somebody. But there are some patients or segments of patients that need proof. They're like, I want to see a test that says I have this to believe that what you're telling me to do, like, I don't want to give up this food or I don't want to take this supplement or I don't want to get more sleep unless you prove to me that my melatonin levels are off and I have to do this. You know what I mean? So sometimes 
that ambiguous sort of testing to give you something that fits your clinical picture is a good motivator for that segment of patients because they they don't want to make a change or intervention unless you can somehow give them objective data that they believe, right? Yeah. And I think you and I practice similarly, like I don't order a lot of the same tests that you do, but let's look at MRIs. Like I MRI maybe 4% of my patients and they have to fit all of the medical guidelines. Like let's say we have a lumbar radiculopathy, like they have to have progressive motor deficits uh, or regressing neurologic deficits. And we've got to be under care for four to six weeks. They've got to have access to a steroid. Uh, and like all those boxes have to be checked for me to even consider doing an MRI because like you, the MRI has to change treatment. Like mm -hmm. if I don't see something that really jumps off the page and I can tell you what your MRI is going to look like, you don't need an MRI because it's not going to change your course of management. Like if I'm ordering an MRI, you're kind of in that surgical prep land mm -hmm. when, we're, mm -hmm. when we're looking at low backs because yep. it's like, okay, we got to see how big this thing is because I know what level it's at, but we just need to see if this is just an absolute dumpster fire or if we have a chance of resolving this with a spontaneous deherniation. Um, and I think that that portrays the value of the test too. If it's just, you're not handing it out like freaking Halloween candy to everybody mm -hmm. and you're not doing it on everybody. It's like, Hey, you've cleaned up a lot of stuff. We have this thing that's keeping us at a plateau and keeping you from thriving we need to spend these funds on this test to go, okay, we have a fork in the road. If the test tells us this, we do yep. this. If it tells us this, we do this. Yep. So uh, when you're working in a realm where people may not be paying, their their insurance may not pay for that test, I think that that's a better value proposition to the patient going, hey, we need this. It has utility in our clinical decision-making. Mm -hmm. I'm not just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks because I'm a lazy clinician. We have really dialed this in and we've worked really hard on this. So people have almost invested money in the pot in a poker game, so to speak, because they've done a lot of work on their lifestyle and their diet. So they're more likely to spend the money on the test to kind of break through that ceiling. Exactly. And you know just as well as I do that once you've seen thousands of patients, you get really good at recognizing patterns and being a good diagnostician. And so if I have a really high percent inkling that I know what's happening and we can intervene and I am pretty sure that this is going to help in your improvement and progress and it doesn't, then we're starting to ask those questions. But to jump there, like right off the bat, like you're discounting A, even just patient subjective history, and B, your ability to recognize patterns and diagnose. It really is sort of a case of laziness. Yeah. And I, I see that with people that they're primary care doctor is ordering an MRI on their neck and it's just a facet and there's no radiation and, or they're doing x-rays on 20 year olds necks. And it's like, they're not going to show anything like, yeah, they may show something if we look at it from a chiropractic biomechanics standpoint, but most of the time the positioning on those x-rays is not specific or adequate enough to get that data. Cause we learn it from a different standpoint than your your normal radiology tech. So people are just running up the bill and that's why insurance companies are looking at more of the value-based clinicians rather than the fee-for-service cl clinicians as those top tier providers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. <clears throat> so what other topics are you wanting to touch on? Because I know you reached out to your, your Instagrammers in uh, kind of your internet posse. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to cover before we just kind of go through uh, what projects you're working on and get people connected with your blog? Because it's phenomenal. I've got it on my bookmarks tool toolbar. You've got a lot of great material and you, you really pump out a lot of good stuff. 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, like I um, mentioned to you, there were a lot of sort of specific questions which we're not going to dive into, but one that came up a few times that I think is worth mentioning because it is sort of a low-hanging fruit is let's say you don't change anything about what you eat. I would love for you to change your quality, you know, as your lowest hanging fruit. But if you didn't change anything, like food timing, I got a lot of questions about food timing. And I think that um, there has been some misinformation in terms of, you know, eat breakfast first thing, have snacks in between meals, yada, yada. And this whole concept of having periods of time where you're not digesting um, is important. And so one thing, if I have a type B person, that this was sort of a question that came up many times in the feedback that I got from um, people on my Instagram account was, should I fast? What should my meal timings be, et cetera? And even if all you did was have a 14-hour window between dinner and breakfast, you'd be amazed if I don't change anything about what that person's eating, but restrict their calorie intake to a specific window. It's a huge deal. So I am a, a very big advocate and I do it myself just because it feels very natural. I don't know if you do it as well. But after dinner, I don't eat again until like brunch, like it's 11 o'clock here and I have not eaten yet. Yeah. And I've done intermittent fasting or some version of it for probably six years now. Uh, and I've had periods to where I would do like a, a, a ketogenic month just to kind of kickstart me and get me some mental clarity and kind of get me back on the wagon. But the only times I really eat in the morning or on the weekends and that I haven't eaten yet and it's 10 o'clock here. I've just had like a coconut cappuccino and a, a coffee. Um, but I think that the breakfast as most important meal of the day is kind of subject to, Hey, maybe we don't always accept this. And I think that's the problem with, uh, just kind of bro science from the fitness industry uh, infiltrating itself into like pseudoscience. It's masquerading as like, okay, this is clinically healthy. Uh, I don't think that everyone needs to eat six small meals a day. Like we learned from our morbidly obese and nutrition professor. Yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. But I do, I do think you'd be amazed at looking at like lab works for even just blood sugar regulation, growth hormone production, like hormones, having that fasted period, digestion even too, like having a, a fasted period, which doesn't mean, oh, go on a 30 day water fast, but just uh, in a substantial period of time within 24 hours where you're not spending metabolic energy on digesting is so huge for tissue autophagy and recovery and repair. And um, that only equals better things from a cell production standpoint, right? Like how efficient are your cells working? That's going to be how uh, efficient your tissues are working, which translates into how well your organs and systems are working. So I, I think that's a low hanging fruit. That was a question that came up a couple times that was worth touching on. Yeah. And I think that like, I I'll eat like a fat kid on Sunday and mm -hmm. I don't even feel like eating until Monday evening. So I'll go a full day without eating. And the, the big change I noticed with intermittent fasting is I my I think it's because of the leptin and ghrelin level sensitivity. I can't eat nearly as much as I used to be able to eat just because my my system like indicators of hey dude you're full like yeah. stop eating yeah. are much more sensitive rather than like eating and eating and eating and then like you finish your your plate and then you're like oh I shouldn't have done that like 20 minutes later. Yeah. Now with the intermittent fasting my, my hormone levels are so much more sensitive that it's just like, hey, you're 80% full, put the fork down, put it in the to-go box, enjoy the rest of that and don't punish yourself finishing it. Yep, exactly. And that is all of those statements that we just said are completely sort of separate from what you're actually eating, which I think is, is sort of fascinating. Like, do we want you eating chemical laden stuff? Probably not, but you see those changes regardless of the food that the person's eating. So that to me is, is fascinating. And I think that you're, point on the food quality is really going to come to the forefront because I think I just saw something last this this week 
about like a huge $280 million lawsuit against the makers of Roundup yeah, uh, causing cancer. And there's a ton of Roundup ready wheat and soy that we're consuming in these conventional products that like they're, when, when we say Roundup ready, it means that those products have been engineered unnaturally to not perish under the spray of Roundup and the farmers can just spray Roundup on everything and kill everything besides the Roundup ready soy and corn and, and grain. And we're just getting stuff that's bathed in Roundup. And it's something that like to, to actually take down a huge company for $280 million, there has to be some serious scientific proof to set that precedent and open the floodgates. For sure. And the irony I think many people miss in this whole picture is how would it ever have gotten approved? And the way that it got approved was because they were able to show that it had no ill effect on human cells, only bacteria. This was rewind, you know, in the timeline of events before we knew that we're 10 times the amount of bacteria than we are cells in our body, right? So if you engineer a product to have a negative impact on the shigamate pathway, which is, you know, for bacterial species only, and discount the fact that humans have a synergy, a symbiotic relationship with bacteria, then you're not giving homage to the fact that we are bacteria houses. So anytime you do stuff to negatively impact the bacteria that are serving us, you also negatively impact us. So yes, you can say that it does not impact human cells in a negative way, but you can definitively say that it impacts bacteria in a negative way. And now we know we are a substantial amount of bacteria. Yes. So any other questions that you got from your tribe? No, I think that was it. Other than very specific stuff, like uh, I mentioned earlier, maybe cost, like, is there cost issue with practicing functional medicine? And I would say those that do integrative um, aspects, like, hey, they're MDs, but they're implementing functional medicine, which is absolutely a new wave. Like this is going to be huge um, soon. Uh, they'll have their own challenges, but that's easier because they can run some things through insurance. A lot of the lab companies run insurance anyway. Um, so some labs like stool analysis and things like that, cortisol panels, those can all be run through insurance. I will say, though, if you're a person that likes to take things by your own sort of horns, if you will, you can walk into any private lab, like any lab test now, and ask for the lab markers that you want. You're going to have to pay cash for them, but it gives you the information that you want, and you don't have to go to a doctor's appointment to do it. And so I think that that's one really useful thing. And I would say that I have had more patients come back to me and say, whatever fee I paid you to correct my disease and move forward without the medications or need for doctor's appointments moving forward. I was reticent in the beginning, but it has made me like actually more ahead in the financial aspect because I don't go to the doctor anymore. I don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for my medications anymore. And, um, so sometimes weighing those options, even if somebody is, is a cash uh, practice is is worthwhile. Yeah. So explain to people kind of what you've been working on and let us know how people can find you. And I'll put some stuff in the show notes as well, but I just want to have it in audio form so that people can know where to get a hold of you. Yeah. So if you go to my website, AngelaLuchterhand.com, you can link to my blog and um, get any recipes, health articles, etc. I have a Facebook page and an Instagram account, both under Dr. Angela Luchterhand. And I post um, almost every day, if not every other day. And for me, part of the criteria of a post is it has to actually have value for the person. So I sort of hold in high regard what kind of information is actually in um, my social media uh, postings. Now, as far as what I like am working on and what I want to do, I feel like 2019 for me is going to be one big year of self-experiment. I'm one of those people that won't do anything that I don't, ask, you know, that I would ask someone else to do. I, I 
will always make sure that I have tried it or had experience with it first. And I love um, self-experimentation because it gives me a perspective on I know my body more than anybody. So what do certain interventions do to me? Does that N equal one translate to everybody that would implement it? No, but I think it gives me valuable information when I'm working with patients. So there's a ton of like different dietary uh, things that I want to try for myself in 2019. I'll probably draw some um, lab markers to get some befores and afters and, and I'll blog about that. I really want to get more group courses going. I'll probably do one every quarter with a different topic. I used to do that pretty regularly and then it kind of fell by the wayside because I ran out of time. But now I'm sort of booking out far enough that I feel like it's worth reintroducing the idea of, hey, if I have an entire group of people that all need to hear the same information, let's just do it all at the same time. And it gives a more cost-effective um, opportunity for a group of people all looking for the same outcomes. So I would say group classes for me, you probably expect to see one every quarter with different topics in 2019 and um, a bunch of blogging about self-experimentation and what it actually does to my lab markers and things like that. Awesome. Yeah. And I enjoyed looking at when you uh, got wired to eat, like yes. just looking yes. at all your, your different testing for that. That was awesome. It was, it was yes. good to follow that. So I'm looking forward to following you in, in the following year and just seeing what you're up to. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, an awesome experiment. I had no idea that oats basically made me diabetic. <laughs> yeah. And like, I know that Kelly Starrett and Rob Wolf, they all have like different reactions than their wives to carbs. Yeah. And I'm yes. going to throw my, uh, I'm going to throw my 23 and me data through the athletogen uh, the analysis that shows you how you metabolize carbohydrate and how fast you recover from athletic activity. And, uh, if I run better on carbs or fat, even though I know the answer, cause right. Cause you know, you can feel. Take a nap. <laughs> so, right. You send me that link because I'd love to run my data too. Yeah, I will. Uh, and I will send you that link and, I, again, I can't thank you enough for taking an an hour plus of your time on a weekend to to share some great information with uh, our podcast listeners, and uh, we'll hope to do a follow up at late next year or mid next year, depending on how much self experimentation you've done, just to kind of see what you've you've found out. Does that sound like a good plan? Sounds awesome. Excellent. Thanks again, and good luck with your car shopping. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. All right, you too.